Black History Always, the podcast. Here's Clinton Yates. The chill is in the air on the East Coast. The pumpkin spice is strong in the streets, and it's definitely hoodie season in many households, which means one thing is right around the corner, hockey season. The NHL is back this year with crowds and a brand new team to boot. As someone who's been a hockey fan since I was a little boy, I've seen the changing landscape of not only how the players look, but the fans and people around the game too. First, the authors of the book, Game Misconduct, Hockey's Toxic Culture and How to Fix It, Evan F. Moore and Joshvina Shah, drop by to talk about their respective paths to the sport and why they came together to write such a powerful tale that needed to be told and how they managed to be instructive and productive at the same time. Secondly, we had a chat with Everett Fitzhugh, radio voice of the Seattle Kraken, the NHL's expansion team. It's an exciting time for pucks in the Pacific Northwest, and the man who will call it all, well, that brother is having a blast. To end things, I'm just going to read some nice tweets about a woman who I've called my baseball fairy godmother, the Hall of Famer Claire Smith, who's got some great things on the way that were announced this week. Let's get it, y'all. Welcome back to Black History Always. My name is Clinton Yates with The Undefeated. Joining me now are two people who I've followed for a long time on the internet because of what they do, but we're meeting virtually, if you will, for the first time. They are the authors of Game Misconduct, Hockey's Toxic Culture and How to Fix It, Evan F. Moore and Josephina Shah. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Yeah, my kids are in the other rooms, you might make an appearance during this podcast. We love to hear that. Now, um, so let me tell you all a quick story. And I've read you guys' opening statement, so this is going to relate a lot to you, Evan. And I think part of what um, your sort of origin story, Josvina, is with hockey might relate somewhat to. Now, two things. I went to Miami of Ohio, and um, I covered hockey there for, you know, a long time, you know, back back when I was in college. Yeah. And um, number two, when I came – when I wrote for The Post – I wrote a story, not dissimilar to you, Evan, that was called, I'm a black hockey fan, we do exist. And I remember that one of the things I explained is that the way that I came to hockey was, you know, I grew up in a place where the Capitals were very real, but video games were a large part of why I liked the NHL. Straight up, NHL 93 and 94 were really, really fun, and that was an opening into the league. I also lived with hockey players when I was in college. You know what I'm saying? And so by the time I sort of got back to being a professional journalist and I could see what I was looking at from the standpoint of simply the Capitals, having seen hockey on a lot of different levels, I was like, yeah, this is kind of an issue. And I'll never forget, we did a chat in thewashingtonpost.com for it, and somebody wrote, what does it matter whether or not hockey players are black, white, blue, green, yellow, or purple, that usual line? And our reply was, if you see a green or purple person at the rink, Call 911. That's all I had to say. That was still the best line I feel like I've ever had in my life. But to that point, what I'm asking you is very simple. You don't have to re-explain your origin stories because people can read the book for that. But what made you all write this book? Evan, you first. Well, in the freelance world, as you know, you know, like sometimes you write stories and they don't uh, get published. So you have all this information. But also when you reach out to people and say, like, hey, did this ever happen to you? It, it got to the point where it, there's so many stories and so much content. So I, so I kind of just held it down for a while. And I had, like, you know, been talking about it to friends, you know, not out there on Twitter or anything else that I wanted to write a book. And I had been following Jocelyn for a while and I had been on her podcast. And I saw a tweet for her, you know, basically saying, like, hey, um, someone wants to pay me to write a hockey book. And I know we're like minds in a lot of things. So I DM'd her, I was like, look, uh, hey, I saw that tweet. Uh, what do you think about, you know, uh, 
the, a crossover event on this and now she was with it and kind of went from there. <laughs> that is a true origin story. It all started with a tweet. Um, I just, I just have to interrupt and say that my really only connection to Miami is that I once had a dream that I was being chased through the rink there with giant by giant turkeys. It was very bizarre because I've never. Hold on. The new rink or the old rink? Because the old Goggin was a real barn. The new one is like a facility. The old one was, I mean, that place, it was a completely different experience than anything I've ever seen. That includes all of Kalataki and the miners. I have never been to either. So I'm going to say it was probably the new one. I don't remember what it looked like <laughs> in my dream, but it was just, I was right. being chased by giant turkeys. Anyway, so, um, I mean, you, you can sort of relate as like having a background in college hockey. And I mean, there's really nobody who looks like us at all. And I mean, it's just annoying and I get annoyed a lot. And I mean, I don't even remember what had upset me. Something had upset me, but I don't know, I, I guess. And like to Evan's point, you know, you, you also like you can keep talking about the same things on Twitter, but, you know, there it, it's it requires so much more. Hello. Oh, I saw our little guest. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Hold on, you're fine. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, there's only so much you can put down on Twitter and to really look into it, you have to really analyze, you know, the the structure you know the coaches there's so many things that go into it which is why I think it was really important that there was a book of you know that we put this information in a book or somewhere where you can actually sit down and explain to people the history of you know why people don't report sexual assault like that's not a tweet <laughs> that requires a lot more space to explain um so something had upset me and I guess I was just mad about explaining it so yeah so I mean when Evan reached out to me I thought that you know we both have different areas we both have similar areas of expertise but also different ones and I think it was really a good com combination um just to have that too, especially um, two different viewpoints and different experiences. So we could really sort of cover a whole range of things versus like, if I had just done this by myself, I think we would have really missed out a lot on the racism aspect. So I'm going to go over the chapter list of this book to start because, and we can dive into each one because I mean, these are big topics the first two what is hockey culture the structure of hockey those are sort of what I would call just the the 101s the 201s and the 301s and we're really understanding what this world is about but when you get to three through five racism is its own chapter sexism and sexual violence are their own chapter bullying hazing and abuse is another chapter before we get to the next three I mean this must have been really really hard to do just in terms of like just rebuilding the stories for yourself, never mind to tell to anybody else in all these different regards. Can you tell me a little bit, if you may, about that process of dealing with your own, you know, tragedy and pain? Evan, did you want to go first? Sure. I mean, it was my story. It was, you ever have a rap to a, a Kim, a, a Kim Alou. And something similar happened to me where I played another store where, where a teammate, you know, called me the N-word. And, you know, I, I, I handled it, you know, but I didn't tell any coaches or anything like that because the same thing we see in hockey, like, it's just very insular. And it could be this kid, it could be, the, you know, a friend of the coaches or a drinking buddy or they go to church together or 
or whatever. So you 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 internalize that when you're wearing a few. I mean, I was at a school, even though it was, it was football. In many cases, depending where you live, but I was at at the time at a all boys Catholic high school where I was one of the few uh, black students. So there wasn't a whole I can do it. I didn't even tell my parents about it. I actually found out about it from reading the book. And at the time, even as a 14-year-old, 14, 15-year-old, I realized even then they're like, hey, you know, there's not a whole lot that can be done about this. And one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is my, my daughter, you see, she plays hockey and I want to be a situation if something happens, she can, come, she can come tell me, she can come tell me or tell a coach or somebody, not like internalize it like I did. That's <laughs> kind of what that is. Uh, but also... You know, like it was like stuff I've witnessed that ring stuff. I've seen, you remember what happened with Devontae Smith Kelly in here in Chicago yeah. at the United Center. And for me, that was kind of one of the biggest moments of how we've seen the hockey culture. Most people don't remember that happened in February during Black Creek Month during when hockey is for everyone. And and just looking at the photos of that night of him in the box and people like yelling stuff at him and like with kids there and like, you know, I just like to wonder what those kids were thinking, you know, and about, you know, was that all, did they think it's okay to, to do that or anything else? And it was just like, wow, like, this is, people are really, they don't seem not to understand, like, you know, in hockey culture, saying the N-word, you know, to a black, to playing basketball to a black player is the N-word. Yeah, I had a couple different experiences. So for me, on one hand, it was actually kind of cathartic to, like, research about sexual assault and like kind of the facts behind it and like the you know the percentage because I think like I I too like throw around a lot like you know not many people lie about it but to actually sit down and like have those numbers and have those percentages and kind of look at it from an analytical viewpoint I feel like um really helped me that being said I've also realized that I'm quite desensitized since I've been sharing my story since it happened so that's probably three years now and I'm kind of just like used to it because I actually got a call from my sister-in-law who read the introduction and I told her what happened when it happened but I guess she didn't realize the extent of it because she she was really freaked out and she called me and I didn't realize how bad it how what it was like for someone else to read that because I'm so desensitized to it that I'm just kind of like, you know, whatever it happened. Um, I will say probably what really got me, there was one incident that um, I think it, it was in the Penguins organization. And I can't remember which one of the coaches it was, but like it was him, his wife and this other guy. And that guy like sexually assaulted his wife in the car. And that was actually like the last thing that I added. So this was probably, this was after like everything else had been finished and like, there were just more things coming up. So that was like one of the last things that I added. And I mean, in comparison, it seems kind of small, but for some reason, I mean, not that it is small, but I guess like, you know, it's one story out of the many that I've been relating and it was like one sentence or two sentences, but for some reason that really stuck with me. and the thing that was really, 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 really hard was reading about, um, was doing the section that's on um, like systemic abuse, because I mean, I think in general, that stuff is just horrifying to read about, you know, when you read about what happens to kids. Um, Sheldon Kennedy's story was hard for me to read. And I, I really identified, even though we did not go through the same things, he talked a lot about what he was feeling in the aftermath. And that was something that I really identified with that really affected me because like what happened is just kind of like it happened. I've sort of blocked it out, but I do, I sort of have internalized how I felt and like what, 
like that to me is more powerful. So like, that's kind of what like I identified with and that made it really hard for me. Um, and also, I mean, like, it's just, I, I work for a youth survey organization. So, I mean, I, it's horrifying to know that nothing has been done to protect these kids, like basic things that you should do. Evan F. Moore, Jasvina Shah, they are co-authors of Game Misconduct. They join me here on Black History Always. My name is Clinton Yates for The Undefeated. Now, the next three chapters, women's hockey, ableism, homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia, we're getting even farther down the road on large-level topics that the average human being walking the globe doesn't even necessarily understand, never mind as they relate to hockey. Joshvina, did you feel like, I don't want to say you wedged this in, but how much did you have to sort of work on that element? Women's hockey could be and has been its own story in a different book on its own. You know what I'm saying? How hard was it just from a simple authoring standpoint to make sure you did right by all of those things as well? It was really hard. I mean, that's the thing, like each topic could really be a book on its own. And we're offering up like a little tiny slice. Like, I mean, Jessica Luther actually did write a book about, well, college football, but the culture of sexual assault in college football. Um, They're not really easy topics to explain and you can't really delve into the nuances. So, I mean, I think that we did. I think that there's some point where you just have to real, like, you just have to think to yourself, did we give everything a fair amount? in this book based on what what's required to explain it. Like the chapter on sexual assault might've been a little bit longer, but like explaining domestic violence is like very, it, it takes a lot more time to kind of explain like how we stop it or like how we should act as a sports organization. Um, and where it's like a little more cut and dry. If someone's racist, you know, we don't have to explain, should they be punished? Yes, they should be like, how should they be punished? It's um, so, I mean, like, I think, you know, we, we read it again, looked over everything. And, um, I mean, but like, even in the racism chapter, like, you know, it was hard to figure out because obviously we couldn't include everything. So like we did include some of anti-Semitism, we did include anti-Indigenous violence, but it's like anti-Indigenous violence on its own could be its own book. Um, so I think it, it was, it was really, really hard. And I think there just came a time where you think, did you explain this topic as well as you could and put the most pertinent information? And is there, is there not, or will people ask you questions? What questions would they ask you about this that are really important? And have you answered those? I think that's sort of. One of the things that I often come up with, even just in casual conversations with other hockey fans and other people who are sports fans who kind of understand hockey, but they don't really know what it's like is trying to overcome the notion that this is an issue for this sport, not just for the sake of 2021 wokeism or wokeness, but because a lot of people who are part of the culture of hockey have been shut out of the presentation, never mind the top flight. This isn't just some course correct for the sake of political correctness. It's, a real deal thing for people that come up in these communities and are shut out. Evan, how difficult did you find it? Or rather, what did you choose to do to explain to folks? There are people here. It's just a matter of looking at them and understanding why they're not at the level that most people see it at. Well, I mean, I guess my story is completely like it, being a fan and actually learning how to play. I didn't really start playing until I was about, you know, my mid thirties, you know, cause there weren't any ranks 
around where I lived. I mean, it's kind of different in Chicago because in Chicago, there's probably five or six indoor year-round rinks, like, proper. Like, all the rinks are in the suburbs. And I explained that a book a little bit. Another writing I've done over time where, you know, where the people that have money in the cloud, that's where the rinks are. You know, in places like Southside and, and the West Side and other marginalized communities, that's not where the rinks are. And I feel like it goes into why the sport is seen, you know, as like an upper crust, like upper middle class type of money to play. Even though that's across the board, but it's different for, you know, folks who see the game who like, okay, cool, that's on TV. I want to do that. But where do I go? And there's literally nowhere for them to go. Like, it's, it's something it has to be, it's only, it has to be tangible to them. They have to actually see it and, and go to a rink. So that's why you kind of see the sport, you know, the way it is. And that kind of like goes into, you know, yeah, some black folks who are fans and they get like, you get, they get heat from black people for being fans and being involved in the sport. But also on the other side, it's been times where I first started playing, like I literally like feel people like staring at me, you know, you're just like, this isn't a fucking zoo, like, you know, back the fuck up, you know, like, so, so that kind of goes, you know, along with it too. Like, you know, I remember it was like a, uh, a shift change and I was at like center ice and I get this, I mean, I had to be looking up in the stand and some guy was like, his buddy was like, <laughs> you know, so I'm just like, really? Like, <laughs> are we still doing this for Chicago? It's like, you don't know, like, it's, it's, this is Chicago. If this happened in Wisconsin, I'd be like, okay, but come on, this is Chicago. Really? Like, this. <laughs> you should expect black people to be doing everything if you're in Chicago, right? Joshvina, what, what was that like for you in terms of representing communities that, are definitely there, but people think that because of the way the timing works out in society that y'all are kind of stealing a moment for the sake of one sport when that's not really the case. Gosh, um, I don't know. I just feel like I've been shouting into a void for years. Yeah. <laughs> and then also, too, because like I don't I have a background in broadcasting and a lot of people are like, well, if so and so or even anywhere, but they're like, oh, like, well, maybe the reason like people of this marginalized background aren't hired is because they're not interested. And I'm like, that's not, no, that's not how it works. You, you have done something which makes them not interested in working with you. That is how that works. Um, I mean, for, for the sake, even, you know what, even for the sake of hockey, it won't survive unless it changes because it's just, it's too insular and it's too expensive and it's too inaccessible. I think that's an interesting point is that a lot of people look at a lot of these things as surface level changes. They don't understand that they are necessary for the viability. Never mind the basic inherent value of if less people are playing nobody is going to be as good that's a different discussion hockey fans are the only people in the world who will get mad that nobody pays attention to their sport but also not let you become a new fan of their sport it it makes no sense like it's like the thing every time i see it because i guess i want a few people out there that that watches the NBA and watches uh, the NHL concurrently because we all know like the Stanley Cup final and the, the NBA finals are on the same time. And I see these people yeah. like punching down the NBA for like no good reason. And it's like, please like my sport. And it was like, why are you doing this? Like it's, and that's another thing too, like that keeps people out. Like it's just like, what I want, why do I want to have a like mind with these who keep talking shit and, and everything else? It's just weird. Cause like hockey is a really great st- sport. It's a dope sport all by itself. There's really no need to punch down on, on NBA, LeBron, D. Rose, or these other folks. They even don't even know you. They don't even care. Like it's like, like, why are you why are you doing this to yourself? 
Black History Always, Clinton Yates. I'm joined by Evan F. Moore and Jashvina Shah. They are the authors of Game Misconduct. The book comes out next week. You know, what always boggles my mind about with the very thing you're talking about is that, like, hockey is a great sport that is also enjoyed over a very large part of the globe that I think is not necessarily taken into account because on some level, everybody's just looked at as sort of a garden variety white guy because they're wearing helmets and, you know, the names, once you get outside of the American sort of nomenclature context, everybody is foreign, you know. Um, What do you think about that in terms of, you know, how, how we, how Americans, North Americans process the game? Is this the general globalization of what is happening to hockey? Do you consider the sport to be behind or ahead when it comes to that kind of thing? I mean, you've seen foreign players over time, but as we, we had a chapter about them, we're literally foreign white white European foreign players. You know, they've gotten some uh, flack too over the years. I mean, we, we've seen it for a long time, you know, like Russian players were seen as lazy. And, you know, and that kind of played into the critiques of Alexander Ovechkin, you know, up until, you know, he won a Stanley Cup and shut that up forever. But, you know, and when I, when I noticed that over time, they're doing it, they're doing it to like, white ethnic players, you know, they're going to, how they're going to do us, you know, and you right. see how, um, like, for instance, with PK, like, you know, like, they're basically saying, like, what happened with him in, in, in Montreal, you know, they're saying that, like, he had too much, you know, personality, which is, you know, cold for being, being too much, too black and having too much sauce, and you saw them years later, you know, draft a player who, 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 essentially, did, who essentially did revenge porn, even after this player said, don't draft me. They did anyway. Right. Swoopy was like, we'll fix this and draft them anyway. Um, speaking of, xenophobia was not something that we had a chance to dedicate a lot of space to. I know we mentioned it sort of briefly, like I kind of, you know, we, we stuck it in there. Um, but it's a really big problem. I mean, which is odd because I would probably say that hockey is maybe the third or fourth globally most popular sport when you consider about the fact that, you know, fin- there are leagues like all over the world. You know, they're in Australia. Um, You can you have your own self-sustaining leagues and, you know, Sweden, you know, Russia, all those places. And there's like and it's it's like very small still. Like, you know, you still know everybody who's playing in like all those different leagues. And you, you, you have like a pretty good idea, especially because especially, too, because like hockey fans are sort of really crazy about. Um, international competition so I feel like it's extremely global but I mean I don't I don't know but like I I don't um the NHL basically there was a story that came out where basically the NHL is like trying to keep players from speaking their native languages um and they'll do things like remove translators which is just horrible it's and then like I know the devils were like making a pun off a player's name and he was foreign and I was like you know you just don't (laughs) It's just like, I don't know, xenophobic is just like, that is hockey, which is bizarre because, I mean, you know, I, there was a reporter who like pointed out that, who, who said that the only lazy players were basically the ones I think from Sweden who played for the Leafs. It was like, it's bizarre because I don't know what it is. Like we, hockey just hates everyone else. Like the NH, I don't know. It's bizarre because like. Yeah. You know, people here go play, they go play in Europe and they go play in Sweden and they like, you know, 
that's where Austin Matthews went when, you know, he went to Europe, I believe he went to the Swiss Elite League and played there in his pre-draft year, which no one had ever done. They usually stay here and they play in major juniors or college hockey. So, I mean, those are, that's where everyone went during the lockout. Like, it's just so bizarre. I don't know. Second to last thing I'll ask you is how, how difficult was it to write this book from an access standpoint? You know what I mean? Like, did people want to talk? Was it hard to get folks to play ball, to use a different sports analogy? You know, how difficult was it to get people on record to talk about the kind of atrocities, never mind microaggressions, that we see all the time in this sport and in a lot of places as well? I think a lot of people wanted to talk. I had a lot of my interviews would run for like three hours or four hours because people just didn't have anyone else to talk about this to. Um, there were people hesitant to being named on the record, um, people who work in hockey, people who play hockey. Um, but there were some people out there who were like, I can't, you know, I can't keep being a part of this. And like, if I say something, hopefully other people will say something too. Um, I mean, I, I feel like we mostly went, looked for people who would talk to us as opposed to kind of went to different people, like random people, like say that I know in hockey and just be like, Hey, you know, do you want to do this interview? Um, I did ask a couple people I knew who didn't respond to me, but I, I don't know if that was because they, what the deal was behind that. But for the most part, like we pretty much put like open calls out and mm. that's how we got a lot of, or at least that's how we got like some of our sources back. Cause they saw us tweet about it and they were like, yes, I want to talk. Yeah, I mean, it's a little different for me because I'm not really a college hockey person. I'm more so like pro and like grassroots level stuff. So it was no, I mean, I reached out to a couple of people and never got back. But overall, like people wanted to talk about this. And I know I mentioned earlier about some past freelance assignments where I didn't like use quotes from people. And I, you know, emailed those people back like, hey, you know, no, it's been a while, but I'm working on this book. Would you be OK with me using these quotes? And, you know, pretty much to a person, they were they were they were with it, you know, because people do want to talk about this. They just they're just in areas where they feel like they don't have the platform and they're there. Me and Josh being on our platform, how we've been talking about it for a while at a few different platforms. And, you know, thankfully, these these folks with it with it and for people to see us talking about this book and tweeting about it and everything else. like I think that gave some hope to some folks who who kind of were like, well, if I say something, you know, like I want to get blackballed in the sport or what have you. But the fact that we you know, put all this out here and and that we have something with teeth now that that documented. Now, we'll, we hope to open up, open up the doors because, you know, using a current term that people say when they heard about the book, they they felt like we were trying to, quote unquote, cancel hockey. And it's like, nah, man, not the case. Like, you got to have these uncomfortable conversations. What would I do if you canceled hockey? Then right. What is that about? Yeah, no, right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll make this the last question then, because I know that with large projects, particularly writing projects or, you know, things like this, my question is, did you accomplish what you wanted? You know, I know that it's, we're, t- we're tackling the patriarchy and all this other stuff. So a book, as hard as it is to write a book, is on some level just the book, but that's a huge step. And all of the things and the effort you guys put into it, did you get out of it from a process standpoint what you wanted? Evan, I'll start with you. I got what I wanted out of it. Even though we turned in our manuscript in January, so much has happened in hockey since, and it kind of backs up our point. It reinforces what we've been saying this whole time, that these incidents aren't, like, aren't one-offs. You know, like, sometimes, you know, white, sometimes, like, white patriarchy 
looks at racism as something that happens like every now and then, you know, like Haley's Comet or like the Olympics or, or, or whatever, you know, like they don't understand, like it's systemic and it happens more than they, they want to. So I'd say, yeah, we, we accomplished what we wanted because we got this book out coming out and all this stuff is still happening. Not saying we're banking on this, but go to show you like these issues are systemic. Okay. So I think that, well, it's kind of hard to say one, cause it just feels really surreal. And I think that a lot has happened for both Evan and I, and a lot has happened just in general um, in this span that like you mentioned, it's like being published in a week, which is kind of crazy to me. Um, but I do think we, accom- we accomplished what we set out to do just because I think for us, like it, it wasn't just about documenting everything. It was really looking at why it happens, like the causes behind it and how to fix it. And I'm not sure that I, that we have an answer for you of how, of whether or not it can be fixed. But I think that, you know, we did go really in depth into how it happens and the, the um, systems that are in place that's upholding this culture and how we dismantle it. And that's really what that was that was a really important part because I think that's hopefully you know a, a guide a guide for people to follow moving forward. He's Evan F. Moore. She's Jasvina Shaw. In game misconduct, they reveal hockey's toxic undercurrent, which is permeated through the sport, throughout the junior college, professional, and well, every other level too. They address the topic with a level of passion that comes from being rabid hockey fans themselves and from experiencing its exclusivity firsthand. I'll tell you, your boy would know because I'm one just like you guys. I really, really want to thank you all for your time very much today. Thank you. I appreciate you. Black History Always, the podcast. Black History Always. Welcome back to Black History Always. My name is Clinton Yates of The Undefeated. We're talking hockey here because the season's around the corner, and it is my pleasure to welcome Everett Fitzhugh to the microphone. He is the radio voice of the Seattle Kraken. Two things off top. First of all, brother, thank you for joining us. And number two, the Kraken white sweaters are the hottest in the game right now. Not close. Everybody, everybody is all about those blue jerseys. And and they're not I, I like them. Don't get me wrong. I love them both. But for me, I am I am all about that white sweater. And actually, he's showing it to me right now. Oh, he just pulled one out. My God, what a move. Oh, it looks so good. It's got five colors on it, for God's sakes. Nobody else is doing that. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, I'm glad to see that you guys are looking good. The colors just pop so much, and, you know, yeah. they, they look they look really good on the ice, too. So, I mean, if I'm, if I'm going out in public, I, I like that crispy, clean look. Uh, yeah. I think I, w- I would go white for, for sure. I, I think, think they, they should, should make the, the jerseys with that sleeve pattern. Like they should have yeah. long sleeve jerseys with that sleeve pattern on them. They would go like hotcakes. But let's get down to the real. I mean, 
I don't know how many other brothers have done or will do your job, but right now, where do you stand in the landscape? And we don't say that from any sort of confrontational standpoint. We say that from an, an, an experience standpoint, an educational standpoint, and a celebratory standpoint. What's, looking, what's the landscape looking like? So I am the only black play-by-play announcer at any level of hockey um, in North America. Uh, full-time play-by-play broadcaster at any level of hockey. Um, now I say North America because maybe there's somebody in the European leagues or over in the Asian league that I don't know about, but, um, I I think over there, I can probably say with 95% certainty, but hundred percent certainty, um, I'm the only full-time black play-by-play announcer at any level uh, of hockey in the, in North America. There are a couple of other young brothers who are coming up, who are doing this part-time one for a college team in Adrian, uh, Michigan and then there's another guy's name is John Ross Jr. and he just got announced as a fill-in broadcaster uh, for the Chicago Blackhawks this season. So um, okay. those two are, are making really big moves. But as far as I'm as far as I go, I'm the only full-time black play-by-play announcer at any level of hockey in North America. Now I'm going to explain this to you, so you know this, but I'm probably going to delete this part on the podcast because I explained it earlier in the show. Which is this: I went to Miami of Ohio. I covered hockey when I was there. I'm from D.C. My entry point to the game was the video game, NHL 93. I never played hockey. I know how to skate, but I grew up with a lot of guys that played hockey. My uncle, as in my cousin's husband, happens to be the head trainer for the Washington Capitals as well. So, you know, like, there's a lot of connectivity, and I'll tell this story on before. In, like, 20 – I think 2010, I wrote a story for the Post before I was a columnist. This is kind of what led me to doing a lot of this. And the headline was, Black Hockey Fan, I'm a Black Hockey Fan, We Do Exist. And I told a story about a game I was at. You know, this wasn't anything like, oh, my God, I got my world rocked. But I explained, like, one of the things that I think the Caps could do, because the Caps have had more black players than any other team in the league. And I said, we could recognize black players the same way MLB recognizes Latin players as a start for a comparative point. And I remember we did a discussion afterwards, an online chat, and somebody wrote, somebody being a jerk, wrote, what does it matter if the players are, you know, black, white, yellow, blue, green, or purple? And my reply was, if you see a green or purple person at the rink, call 911. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) And so that was my magnum opus in sort of terms of that. And over the years, I've covered hockey a lot. But that's just where I'm coming from from a background standpoint. That is all to say. For people who don't know who Everett Fitzhugh is, you do not have to be as long-winded as I. But what is your hockey background long before we ever get to you being in Seattle and doing your job? Yeah, I mean, it it started back when I was a kid. I grew up in Detroit, born and raised in Detroit. Um, You know, a lot of people, they see me and then they hear my voice and they're like, Oh, no, you from the suburbs. I'm like, nope, I grew up on Eight Mile and Myers. I am from Detroit, Michigan, okay? Like, look it up, 313, all that. I'm I'm from Detroit, Michigan. Um, So I I grew up in Detroit uh, around the time the Red Wings were were winning those back-to-back Stanley Cups, so 97-98. I was was a hockey fan because the whole town was a hockey fan. I don't have to tell you or anybody in the sports world the state of Detroit sports – Historically, so the Red Wings have been one of the one of the positives uh, in in my city. So um, I got into hockey that way, and and honestly, I, I just went along with it because the majority of my classmates went along with that. I, I went to a, a yeah. private school. 
Um, and, and a lot of my classmates were hockey fans and I was like, all right, I'm third grade. I want to fit in. So I'm a hockey fan too. All right. Awesome. Right. Um, and honestly, I wouldn't say that I became like a hardcore hockey fan until probably third grade. I was by eight or nine years old around there somewhere. And I went home and I watched a, a Red Wings game and they were playing the Edmonton Oilers and Edmonton at the time had two black players on the team. They had Mike Greer and George LaRock. So, so both of whom spent some time with the caps, by the way, both of whom who spent some time with the caps. And I got another one for you here coming up. Uh, for me to see those two on the ice, you know, playing the game that that was huge, you know, that that let me know that there was a place for me in, in the game. And a few years later, Anson Carter joins uh, the Edmonton Oilers. Yeah, another one oh, right Anson. there. Uh, so, you know, and, and Anson Carter, you know, you had three black players on the same team. I, that was it. I was done. I, I had my mom buy me Oiler jerseys. I had Oilers t-shirts. I had Oilers hats, um, in Detroit, we got CBC. So I got to watch hockey night in Canada. So I watched all the, the games growing up and that's when I was introduced to Jerome McGinley, Kevin Weeks, Fred Brathwaite, yeah. um, other black players it was massive for me. And, and it let me know that, that I, that I belong in this game that I, that I, you know, it's not just for the rich white kids. It's not just for the white community. It's, it's for everybody. So fast forward through, through my, my adolescence and high school. And, you know, I, I still big hockey fan was massive hockey fan. And I always knew that I wanted to work in sports. I, I didn't know mm-hmm. what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't even know that play-by-play was an option until I got to college. I, I was going to be Stuart Scott. You, do you tell, tell 10-year-old, 11-year-old Everett, I was going to take over for Stuart Scott on the sports center desk. No questions asked. The late, great Stuart Scott obviously is a guy that we all pay homage to. But let me back up a little bit here. Did you play? Never played. I never played. Um, So I'm an only child of a single mom. And, you know, mom was very protective of her baby. So, uh, you know, a little dangerous. Um, I was a baseball player growing up, actually. So baseball was, was right. my favorite. Yeah, baseball okay. was my favorite sport growing up. So, um, yeah, I never played hockey. I honestly, I didn't even learn how to skate until I was a, I was a senior in college at Bowling Green when I learned BG, how to skate. BG, BG, you can see, you can see the football <laughs> helmet. I was gonna bring that up and the light, <laughs> and I knew that you were a Miami grad, so I wanted to make sure. <laughs> that I had those prominently displayed. I love um, it. And if you look over my shoulder here, I got a little yeah. Bowling Green throw uh, throw rug on the. Yeah, you got the whole you got the whole night. A lot of Falcon pride over there. Oh yeah, always proud Falcon. <laughs> Once a Falcon, always a Falcon. So 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 you didn't you didn't know that play by play was an option, yeah. but broadcasting was very much what you were going to do. Yes. Yes. And that's, that's part of the reason why I I chose Bowling Green. Um, Again, I knew that I wanted to work in sports. I wanted to go to a school that had all four major sports at the D one level. You know, I was considering other schools, but you know, Bowling Green just kept checking a lot of boxes. So I went to Bowling Green um, and I'll never forget the day I was actually, I was dragged off the couch uh, of my dorm room. I was watching, uh, a Tigers A's playoff game. And my buddy uh, said, Hey, you're into sports, right? You're, you're into broadcasting. You want to be a broadcaster. There's this uh, group called Bowling Green radio sports organization. I think you'd be interested in like, let's go to a meeting. So I, I go to this meeting and 
you know, it, it's, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of sports nerds. And a lot of these guys are still <laughs> some of my best friends to this day. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm home. <laughs> like, right. I, I found a group of people that love to argue and talk about sports. And again, 17 year old Everett, you couldn't tell him anything. I knew more than you did. Right. So right. that was the whole goal. Yeah, you know? exactly. That was the whole goal. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I, uh, I joined the organization um, and I got started doing board hopping. I did intermission hosting. I did halftime hosting for, for basketball games and football games. I had my own show uh, for a little bit called Motown Sports Madness, where we talked about okay. Detroit sports. Yep, yep. Um, and, and I remember it was January of my freshman year. So this had been January of 2007. I just okay. turned 18 years old. And everybody in our group wanted to broadcast basketball and football they wanted to be the next Mike Breen they wanted to be Bob Costas and Marv yeah. Albert and all those guys there were very few people who were even hockey fans let alone could put together a, a, a conversation or a broadcast about it so I volunteered huh. to do a game as a color analyst and I fell in love with it I did that first game it was against the University of Alaska Fairbanks and I, I, I loved everything about it. And I called my mom and I said, you know what? I'm, I'm about to put all the eggs in the hockey basket. Like this was, I've never felt so good after doing something professionally than that first game at the time. And it was just like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I love that because I think that that part that you mentioned about number one, you had a plan in terms of you wanted to go to a school with four major sports there. That, to me, is tremendous foresight for a young man. And number two, I think the notion, and I say this for all the young broadcasters out here, the notion of using what is really you to get to a place that other people don't do is huge because you don't have to be the biggest expert on everything. But if you know what you're talking about and you genuinely like it, that's going to show. And so picking the hockey lane – Although it probably felt a little strange, it probably wasn't that strange for you because, hello, you like the sport. Yeah. And, and I think also, too, if we're being honest, it was it was selfishly me getting the opportunity to get on the air more. You know, yeah. I, I, the way that I look at it, I was probably going to at the end of my four years, I might have gotten five football games. I might have gotten 15 basketball games. Right. I got 40 hockey games a year for three years Ooh. as play-by-play. And then my junior year, uh, when I became like the full-time color analyst, I did half the games. I did 20 games at color. I was high school hockey play-by-play. -play. And then I took over the varsity job play-by-play -play, uh, when I was a senior. So I did it my senior year. I had to come back for a fifth year in school. So I did it for a fifth year in school. And then my first year out of school, I was a play-by-play -play announcer for the team as well. They let, they invited me back. So wow. I was for three full years doing division one play-by-play that wouldn't have happened had I have chosen football or, or basketball. Um, and even though I enjoyed doing basketball games, I called some baseball games. The opportunity was there for me in hockey. And that's, that's another big reason why I just said, you know what? Yeah, it gets me on the air. It gets my voice out there. We're talking with Everett Fitzhugh, the radio voice of the Seattle Kraken. My man, I'm glad you said this, to quote the great Mike Wilbon. <laughs> um, is the reason why is because the concept of reps, I think, is something that for broadcasters, they don't understand. They're like, oh, man, you're so good at this. You're so good at that. And 
Sure. Is there a certain amount of knowledge that's required? Is there a certain amount of skill to be able to just do the job? Of course. But the reps are vital, you know, and for you to be have been that young and to get that many reps in on any level. And for those of you who don't know, D1 college hockey is a different monster than every other form of hockey. I mean, it's different than the international game for a lot of reasons. It's different from the pro game in the NHL for a lot of reasons. But it's also it's a little rough around the edges, you know what I mean? And I'm, that, the reason I bring that up is because I want to ask you, beyond just the reps, in terms of the actual pucks, what was that college hockey experience like for you in terms of how you grew as a broadcaster and as a fan? The college hockey game is so fast. It, it is so much. It's so fast. And people who go watch a college hockey game in person and then they go to an NHL game or, or an American Hockey League game, they'll say that, you know, I, I know that these NHL players, Ovechkin and Crosby, are miles ahead of these players at Bowling Green, but the game is so crisp at the NHL level, it almost slows down for you. Whereas yep. at hockey, you're in college hockey, I should say, you got guys in full cages. So they don't wear the half shield. They have the full face uh, uh, shield on. So they're essentially like missiles out there. Right. So the game is really fast. It's a lot more scrambly. Um, you have a lot of opportunity to get things wrong because it, it just moves so quick. And I think for me learning hockey, that was the biggest adjustment was the speed to, to of the game. Mm. Um, you know, I, I played hockey video games my whole life growing up. So, you know, I, I, I pretended to be Jim Houston and Doc Emmerich and, and, <laughs> and call games like that. But, right. um, you know, when you're doing it for the first time in person, you're just, it's, it, I remember the first game I ever did, it was a preseason. It was, it was a high school hockey game. And like high school Ohio hockey, don't get me wrong. I, I, I love high school hockey. We're not in Minnesota. We're not in Michigan, <laughs> right? And even, even doing high school Ohio high school hockey, that first two minutes of the game, I had this holy you-know-what moment. Like, this is Okay, what can I do this? Like what? Right. I looked at my color analyst and I'm like, you may have to take over here because this is fat. <laughs> So it's all about reps. It's all about finding what works for you. And, and, and I think a lot of it too, when, and, and this is going to be a very, very easy, you know, 3000 level view of it. But when you think about it, you're just, you're just talking about what you see. You, you, I'm telling you what I'm seeing. Um, and, and I'm not trying to make it sound easier than it is because it's not easy at all. But, you know, you get those reps in, you, you go back and listen to your tape. To this day, I hate listening to myself. I hate it. But I still do it because it, it helps you get better, helps you improve. And, and as someone who never shuts up, you can ask my friends, my mom, my wife, everybody <laughs> will tell you. Like, he loves the sound of his own voice. He never stops talking. But, um, yeah, it, just getting, getting those reps in was huge because you learn throughout that process what works, what doesn't work. You take notes on what you do. Um, I was very, very fortunate to have two play-by-play -play announcers, three play-by-play -play announcers before me at Bowling Green. All I worked with as a student, uh, I was each of their color analysts, and then they went off to pro hockey at various minor league levels. So I got to learn under a pair of future minor league hockey broadcasters, pro broadcasters. So that also helped a lot in like, you know what, I can model my game, at least in the start after this guy, he calls the puck this way, that kind of thing. So that also helped uh, uh, in my development and my growth. Let me ask you this then. 
along yeah. those lines. You talked about minor league hockey, which is, if you guys don't know about minor league hockey, my guy, that is the most different of worlds. You know what I'm saying? Right. But I want to ask you sort of a combo question, which is what were some of the stops along the way after BG before Seattle? And also in correlation with that, when did you know you found your voice in terms of what you were doing? Yeah. Um, Man, so I just got goosebumps thinking about that journey. Um, <laughs> it, it was a long one. I uh, I applied for a job right out of school. Um, I was a finalist for the job right out of school. It was me and another guy. The other guy got the job. He's actually still with that team. Amazing broadcaster. Never met him in person, but everyone I know who knows him says he's a great dude. So, uh, you know, happy for that he got the job. But, you know, there's so much more than broadcasting. I thought, because in Bowling Green at college, we have SIDs. We, we have right. sports info people, right? I didn't have to do social media or press releases or game notes and all that stuff. So I didn't learn any of that in school. So when I, when I didn't get the job, I, I was like, all right, what can we do to, to get that area of, of my, my portfolio built up? So I applied for any and all jobs. I was that annoying guy who emailed mm. all the general managers and like, hi, right. my name is Everett Fitzhugh, recent graduate of Bowling Green State University. I'm emailing you to at like, is in hindsight, I'm like, someone clearly has what this was job I doing? Right. Yeah, yeah. What am I doing? Exactly. I'm that guy. Um, so I end up getting a job with the USHL, which is a junior hockey league. So for folks who aren't too familiar with, with the hockey landscape, unlike football and basketball, high school hockey isn't that good outside of a few places. So if you want to go play college hockey, you have to go play juniors. Uh, so you go to, you know, small towns in Iowa, Wisconsin, Ohio, places like that. You leave home. You leave home. You leave home. You stay with a billet family, a host family. Um, a lot of guys go there at 16, 17 years old. So they finish up school there. Um, you have to get better, bigger, stronger, whatever. So you may not be a freshman on your college hockey team until you're 20 years old, 19, 20, okay. 21 years old. So the best way that I can describe it is be like AAU for, for hockey. Right. Yeah. Except you're going away to play AAU hockey, if you will, and then go to college. So I worked for the top junior hockey league in the U.S. for a year and a half in their communications department for the league. So I was in charge of all the social media. I did digital content. I did press releases. I did game recaps, event planning, all that stuff that I didn't have. And I knew that I needed. Um, so I was there for a year and a half, but something was missing. I was missing that itch. I was missing getting back on the microphone. So that job was in Chicago. Uh, I was there for a year and a half. And then I got a job in Youngstown, Ohio, um, with the Youngstown Phantoms of the USHL. So I kind of went backwards. Some people will go okay. team level to league level. The I league went level league to team. Yeah. Uh, so I got back on the mic there, um, was there for a year. Great year. Um, and then about five ECHL jobs opened up that season. And, you know, hockey is a business of who do you know? It's all about who you know, because the play-by-play -play broadcaster that preceded me at Bowling Green was working for a team in Orlando. And he knew the Cincinnati broadcaster was leaving. So he sent me an email. I forwarded my stuff. I got an, I got an email from the GM, Kristen maybe a week later. I mean, it was a quick process. So I went from Youngstown to Cincinnati, the ECHL, which is double A hockey. Uh, I was yeah. there for five I've been seasons. to many games there. <laughs> oh yeah. For sure. 
So I was there for five seasons um, and then I got the job here. But as far as finding my voice, I would say midway through my third year at Cincinnati. So maybe like late second year. So we're talking 15, 16, late 16, 17 season, early 17, 18 season is when I started really feeling confident in my voice, in my delivery, in my flow, in my cadence, in my vocabulary. That's when I said to myself, all right, I, I think I found what works. Now let's try and improve that. And, and that's, it, it took a while, but that's when I learned. Um, and that's when I, I found that voice and that rhythm. Everett Fitzhugh, radio voice of the Seattle Kraken, joins us here on Black History Always, Clinton Yates of the Undefeated. Now, the really cool part about what you're doing for me is not just who you are and your story that I've learned of, which is kind of corollary to mine now that I'm realizing we both went to Mac schools and brothers and, you know, all this. But you're part of an experience that is sort of a holistically important thing for the NHL. There's a new team in a big city in a city that's in a part of the globe where people already like hockey, but they have not had an NHL team in a hundred years, literally, you know? And so like, there's so many things happening at once. What's that like to be a part of overall from a sporting and an NHL experience from your position? This is the largest startup company that has ever (laughs) existed on the face of the planet. Let me tell you, It, it has been, it has been so surreal and such an honor to be a part of this, to see this city become NHL fans. You said it, there's already major junior hockey out here. There's a team in Everett. There's a team in Kent, which is about a half an hour on either side, north and south of downtown. You've got a team in Portland. You've got a team in Spokane, down in Walla Walla. The Vancouver Canucks are up the road, right? Like there's hockey here. But like you said, we haven't had hockey here since post-World War I. Uh, 1924 was the last time that there was major NHL hockey in Seattle. This is back when guys were taking trains to play each other. So that was a series with seven games. You played the first three in one city and the next four in another because you just couldn't get back and forth literally through transportation. Right. Right. Brothers weren't that good. <laughs> right. Um, and in fact, a lot of folks don't know, but the first American team to win the Stanley cup was the Seattle Metropolitans back in yeah. 1917. Um, so just to give you an idea of how deep the, the hockey roots are here in Seattle, um, it's, it's great. The fans have been awesome. I remember when my wife and I came out, uh, last summer. Now, um, we were out here, um, looking at apartments and one of the leasing agents was like, man, you guys are moving here at the right time. You know, there's a hockey team coming, right? Like they're redoing <laughs> the arena and everything. It's amazing. And I'm sitting there like, oh, I may have heard some things about that. <laughs> Might yeah. be familiar with Might that. Might be familiar yeah. with that. Um, but the, the love and the support that we've got from the community has been awesome. I mean, and I'm sure we're going to get into this later, but the yeah. work that the organization has done from a diversity standpoint, from an, from an inclusion and an equality standpoint is unmatched. I'm, I'm not, it's, it's literally unmatched at any level in the game of hockey. And honestly, when it comes to front office positions and, and women and people of color, I would be willing to put our organizations up against a lot of other major four sports organizations, not saying everybody, but you know, what, what we've done here and what we believe in and what we value as a core organizational belief 
is, is, is something you don't see a lot. And I think for me, whose goal ever since he was 18 years old to get to the NHL, I mean, I would have done this for any one of the 32 teams. I mean, NHL team calls you, then, you know, it's, they say jump, you say how high. But right. the fact that I'm able to do this for a team that is just starting, that believes in what it believes, that is doing things the way they're doing. We have had no missteps. And, and I say that I know that I'm a bit biased and I'm on the inside, but in talking to folks who are outside and talking to the, the pundits and the reporters and what have you, the Seattle Kraken have taken very few, if any, missteps. Um, and and it has been such a refreshing um environment to be a part of every single day and to come to work every day. And now we're, you know, we're just over a week away, you know, uh, of getting this thing going for real. You know, we just wrapped up preseason and we've had, it's been great. It's been amazing. That's awesome. I l- listen, I mean, I know that y'all might get on here and start thinking, oh, well, of course he's going to say that. They gave him a job, blah, blah, blah. Let me tell y'all, I talk to a lot of people who are the only persons who do what they do. They don't talk like that. You know what I mean? And also it's been obvious too, because the hockey world is kind of in a reckoning on some level. Um, we talked to Evan and Jasmina earlier in this program and they're writing a book about this whole thing. And the reason I say that is not to sort of put a spotlight on anything negative, but I want to ask you this. And this is the penultimate thing I'll ask you, which is the responsibility element for who you are to yourself has to be very high because there's a couple things at hand here. You're teaching the game. Even though there's a lot of big-time hockey out there, you're still trying to bring in new actual fans to the NHL, not just to the sport. So there's that element. But also, you know, yeah, people are going to start to notice who you are and what you're doing, and other folks who look like us are going to have needs and wants and demands about the game that you're going to have to burden simply by virtue of being black, and there's nothing wrong with that. Where are you in terms of how much you're going to have to just do outside of calling games as a person to make sure this thing really goes on the right way. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was my whole job in the beginning when I, so my, my, my official first day of work was September 1st, 2020. So last September. So I just celebrated uh, almost 13 months uh, here. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And I've been doing everything, man. I have been (laughs) voicing spots. I have been hosting panels, leading discussions, you know, shaking hands, kissing babies, like doing all all that stuff. But I love doing that because, you know, and and to kind of go a little bit deeper into your question, when I was growing up, I didn't have a lot of positive black influences in the game of hockey. I had Anson and and, and LaRock and Greer and, and Kevin Weeks and all those guys. But, you know, I saw those guys play. I didn't have someone in the hockey world that I could look up to and say, hey, I can do this. I, I can be one of you guys. So for me to be able to be in this position, I think it's 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 really important. And, you know, obviously everyone has the line of I want to be the best broadcaster. I don't want to be the best black broadcaster, which is true. But I think it's also important to note that you owe it. I owe it to myself. I owe it to the culture, to the sport, to be that person that I never had growing up. And, and I, and I apologize if that sounds arrogant and cocky on my part, but you know, I want that nine-year-old black kid in Detroit, in South Seattle, in wherever that may 
want to play hockey, who want to be a fan of hockey, but they get made fun of because black folks don't play hockey. You're supposed to play football. You're supposed to play basketball. I want to tell that kid, no, you can play hockey. You can be a fan of hockey. You can be a season ticket holder. You can be an employee. You can coach. You can do whatever you want. So I think for me, having this visible presence in Seattle it's been something that it, it took me a bit to get used to because I've mm-hmm. always been the PR guy. I've always been behind the scenes and right. my job is to make you look good, but now right. I'm in front of the camera. So I've <laughs> learned a lot about myself. It's it, kind of uncomfortable at first, but now, you know, I'm a year in and, and it's, it's, it's like old hat, but you know, I think being able to show the different communities that we have here in Seattle, that there is a place for them in our organization and in our game is, is crucial. We have uh, I want to say upwards of 40, 45 percent, um, if not more, members of our front office are, are women. And we mm-hmm. have north of 26 percent are, are BIPOC people of color. Um, okay. That is unheard of in a hockey front yeah. office. So that is beyond unheard of. Beyond unheard of. <laughs> so it's not it's not the Seattle Kraken trotting out Everett Fitzhugh as the token black guy. It is right. the Seattle Kraken fundamentally believing and and instilling that as a as a company value that different racial, sexual, religious voices matter. And and that's 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 the key. That's the big thing. So when we go in the neighborhoods, South Seattle, we go in the South Park, we go into other places here that have been historically disenfranchised and, and, and otherwise, you know, underrepresented. We can go into these communities with our heads held high and say, listen, we're here to try and affect change. We're here because we want to be here. This isn't just a PR box that we have to check off. This is something that we fundamentally believe in. The kids call that, excuse me, by that kids, he means do the work. That is what matters. Last thing I'll ask you is this. More generally, on a much lighter note, overall, tell me a little something cool about Seattle and tell me some of your, like, Thoughts on the NHL season, just in terms of storylines you're looking forward to more generally. Yeah, so Seattle itself is as a city is is awesome. Um, and I know that one of your co-workers, Mina Kimes, is is from the area, big Seahawks fan. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and and I know that she, I, I sometimes I feel like she's on an island. Just I see her on social media talking about Seattle. So, Mina, if you're listening, I'm with you. This town is amazing. Um, so <laughs> I, I love this city. Um, everybody who says it rains all the time. Seattle actually gets more rain than only six cities in the NHL. Um, that said, oh. if it doesn't rain but five minutes, it'll rain every single day. That, but, <laughs> but you know what? We had right. we have awesome summers here. The summers here are great. I'm a big foodie. I, I love me a nice tall glass of, of beer. There's an awesome uh, uh, brewery scene here, awesome food scene here. Um, so this is one of those cities where, I mean, it's definitely – I always growing up thought this was like a magical place. You've got this big city at the base of a mountain tucked into the forest up against the the sea. (laughs) It's not a real place, right? So it actually is a really cool, cool spot to be in. So I'm very lucky that I was able to land here and very fortunate and blessed that I was able to land here and, 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 and be a part of this community that is so vibrant. It is so bright. It is so progressive. It is so forward here in Seattle. 
I know politically Seattle gets a bad rep, but don't say nothing until you come out here and see it for yourself. So um, it, it is definitely one of those places that I think everyone should visit. As far as the NHL goes, uh, yep. this season, it's going to be a good season. I think, number one, off the ice, right? You're trying to get back to a pre-COVID COVID world. Um, and, and, you know, it sounds like most of the league is going to be back to full capacities with masking and vaccine passports and mandates and all that stuff, which, you know, if you're asking me personally, it's fine by me. It just keeps all of us safe. Um, and, and yeah, I got no problem with it. I'll get every booster you got. I'll show, I'll, I'll get his booster if he doesn't want it. Um, but you know, as far as on the ice goes, man, this game is, is as young and is as talented and as skilled. There's so much parody in this league. You know, you have a team in Vegas that made it to the cup final their first season. They get to the, the, the conference finals last year and a team in Montreal that is also young and talented. A lot of people said that Montreal wasn't supposed to be there. They beat, uh, they beat Vegas and made it to the they won that Canada Cup, you know what I'm saying, and made it out. Yeah, exactly. So the, the the sport is growing all over the country, man. The fact that we've had, I want to say, five different teams have won seven Stanley Cups in the last 15 years from non-traditional hockey markets. Your Anaheim's, L.A.'s, Tampa's, Carolina's, Vegas getting to the cup final, Dallas DC. getting to a cup final, D.C., right? <laughs> Places that hockey doesn't exist here. So, you know, it's it's been awesome. I, I think we're in for a fun year. I, I have gone both on and off record saying that I think that the Seattle Kraken are a playoff team. Um, you know, I think I think we can do it. I think it's not unheard of. You know what I'm saying? You get a good coach that can put together a team of so-called also rands. You've got a motivational element there that's already done and you've got some talent. I mean, this is not crazy to think that this team could make the playoffs, the playoffs. And look at what Vegas did. You know, Vegas, right. they had, I remember this interview. I think they, they started off hot. They had such a hot start. They kind of dipped a little bit there, but I remember one of their players coming out. I think it was William Carlson came out and he said that, you know, we're wow, Bill, like the, I love that guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're we're kind of like the island of misfit toys here. You know, we yeah. we had we were we were cast aside by by our other team. So you know, what? we're going to come together and we're going to show the league that we belong here. And what did they do? They made it to Game Six against your Washington Capitals, who won their first cup. And you know what? I, I'm an OV fan, man. I, yeah. I was happy for him. I was happy for him to get that cup. I know a lot of folks in that organization, so um, I was happy for them to, to do that but this is going to be an exciting year and, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on the mothership right now but what NHL did getting these games on ESPN and TNT is going to be massive it is going yep. to grow this game like we've never seen before um, and and look out the fact that you have teams that historically have not been in the national spotlight. I think I saw our schedule. We've got four or five games this year against on national broadcasts against Anaheim, Arizona teams wow. that has that, you know, historic aren't very good. But you know what? We're going to show off our teams in right. these markets. So th this is going to be, I think one of the best years that we've seen for a long time in the NHL. And I think as, as long as we, uh, and I say we, as the sport, the Royal, we can continue to do our part with COVID get vaccinated, keep masking up around people, you know, adhering to those mandates locally and throughout the teams. 
I think there's going to be so much to celebrate come June when when we're wrapping up with hopefully the Seattle Kraken standing at the top of that mountain. He's Everett Fitzhugh. He's the radio voice of the Seattle Kraken. I can tell you all just from this conversation, him and I are going to be friends. Thank you for joining us, man. Absolute pleasure, man. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You spoke to us, now we'll speak to you. Here's Talk Back. There's nobody like Claire Smith. She stepped away from ESPN after many years working with the company as a baseball mind that kept our ships sailing smoothly during the playoffs. Of course, she was a legend long before I ever got to meet her. And when she parted the company, I said this on Around the Horn. I'd like to transition this conversation to somebody in baseball who I admire quite a bit. Claire Smith is a Hall of Fame writer. She was the first woman who ever became a beat writer for Major League Baseball for the Hartford Current back in the day. She's been covering baseball for 39 years. I am a total of 39 years old. She won't be working with us at ESPN any longer, and I have to explain to you, she is the most important person I've ever met in this business in terms of how she shows love and care and help and expertise and everything else. I don't know what it's going to be like to walk into a ballpark during the World Series and not see Claire Smith. Hopefully I do, and I can't wait to see what she does next. Claire, thank you so much for everything you have given to so many sports writers, women, black folks, everybody else in general. You're the best. Thank you so much for everything you've given me. Today, her alma mater of Temple announced the opening of the Claire Smith Center for Sports Media at the Klein College of Media and Communication, a world-class academic center focused on teaching, training, and research in the areas of sports journalism, advertising, public relations, and production. I damn near burst into tears when I read it this morning. Some of the kind words sent her way in the replies, I just had to share. Dana O'Neill wrote, Can't think of a better person to represent journalism and empower future journalists. Just awesome. John Fisher chimed in with, Such a great opportunity for people who want to get into sports media, and Claire is one of the best people I've ever been around, aside from the incredible role model and trailblazer she is. Agreed. And of course, my buddy J.A. Adande, he summed it up perfectly. What an amazing tribute. Congratulations, Miss Claire Smith. See y'all next week. Thanks for listening to Black History Always. Follow us wherever you listen to your podcast.